Welcome back, everybody. My name is Mike. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Baskets. We are getting pretty darn close to the start of the 2023-2024 NBA season after, well, what has felt like most off-seasons do is a very, very long one. And uh, hopefully this season, maybe that's a lot to hope for, hopefully this season, I'd say very, very likely in the following season, these off-seasons will be getting a little bit shorter as the Pistons are ideally at least in the first round of the playoffs. So in any event, training camp starts up on October the 3rd. So which I believe is exactly three weeks from the day I'm recording this episode. And then preseason kicks off October the 8th against the Suns. So about five days after that. Well, obviously, eight minus five, you know, eight minus three equals five. Uh, don't listen to me. So still waiting to see if anything might happen in terms of player movement with what remains a little bit of an awkward roster. Who knows? I don't, well, I could say I don't foresee anything major, but really honestly have not even the slightest clue. And things do happen late in off seasons. Boyan was acquired literally the day before training camp last season. He was acquired on media day. So these things happen. They're not really altogether all that likely this close to the season, but all we can really do is speculate. Uh, and that was an, an absolutely and utterly worthless insight on my part, but I hope you enjoyed listening to it. In any case, this is going to be a bit of a mini mailbag episode. I want to thank everybody who submitted topics on Pistons Discord. If any of you all are or Discord users haven't checked it out, or at uh, discord.gg slash Pistons. I got a pretty sweet community over there. Check it out. So uh, let's kick it off in no particular order, or rather in the order, well, it is a particular order because it's the order in which I received the question. So number one, best role player from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s Pistons teams, defining uh, whom I would like to have on on today's roster and defining these guys as somebody who never made an all-star game in their career. So I'll say that for the 1980s and the 1990s, this would be a little bit hard for me for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, that was before my time. I just was not watching the Pistons at that point, you know, at that point for, well, in part because I I wasn't alive for some of it, but also because I didn't really get into the Pistons very much in my life until the the going to work era. And even then I wasn't, I knew enough, I knew enough back then to answer that question uh, for the 2000s. And of course, no plenty from the 2010s, but so when, when it comes to the eighties, I don't know very much. And also, you know, I do know some guys, but it's a very, very different NBA now, of course, than it was back then. It's a very, very different NBA than it was even in the 90s, certainly in the 80s, even in the 2000s, even in the early 2010s. But so you have some guys who are good role players back then who really wouldn't fit for the Pistons. They wouldn't fit for any team in the NBA. And you can look at a guy, for example, in the 80s, like uh, Vinny Johnson, who was, you know, a decent sixth man. I was going to call him a microwave scorer. That's his actual nickname is the microwave. But he was pretty inefficient and couldn't shoot threes. And also he was undersized. And uh, if I recall correctly, not the greatest on defense. He's just the kind of player who really wouldn't fit too well in today's NBA. And even if you go into the 2000s and you know, even leaving aside the fact that I don't really know a ton about that era, that era of the Pistons, I do know that these were not deep teams. And excuse me, in the 90s. Uh, in the 90s, these were not deep teams. These were top heavy, not particularly good teams after the championship era. And on those championship teams, you can even look at, you know, because the second championship was in was in nineteen ninety, you can look at that team. Even even the guys there, I mean, obviously you have to rule out Lambeer, you have to rule out Isaiah Thomas, Dumars, you have to rule out Rodman, you have to rule out even Aguirre, because he made an all star he made a few all star games if I remember correctly. And <clears throat> even if you didn't have to, to rule out Rodman, who was a role player on that team, I mean the guy was probably about six six without shoes and couldn't shoot would kind of struggle to play that small at center in today's NBA. Just a lot of these guys would have to would have to play differently. But yeah, when it comes to the 90s, man, 
uh, just uh, as a decade. I mean, who do you think of guys who, who weren't necessarily like the principals for the Pistons and yet were decent players who didn't make all-star games? I thought of Allen Houston, but he did make a couple of all-star games. Uh, Terry Mills is a guy I don't know too much about, but he had a couple of seasons with the Pistons in which he scored well. He was uh, B-lead for the time, a, a, very, a very before his time, a stretch four, but I really never watched the guy play, so I couldn't tell you. So kind of got to beg off on that question from, from the 80s and the 90s, unfortunately, uh, it, in largest part, just because I don't, I just my, my base of knowledge is not really big enough. I tend to like to answer things only if I really have the backgrounds. This is me tooting my horn, my own horn, just the way I, I like to do it. I don't, I don't really like to make, I wouldn't want to answer on the basis of, in, of really what I consider to be very insufficient knowledge on my part. Those are just not errors of the Pistons in which I, I really have a great background. But also, again, it's complicated by the fact that just a lot of those guys would not fit in today's NBA. They would either have to play differently or they just wouldn't make it, which makes sense given that this was a long, long time ago. Now, you go to the 2010s, excuse me, the 2000s, it becomes very easy. The answer becomes Tayshaun Prince, a guy who was arguably a fringe all-star a couple of years there. Though even then, I would say that like in, in those really peak, peak seasons, like between 2005 and in 2008, where he was a good player, but I wouldn't even necessarily call him a fringe all-star player. Can't put him in the same category as Ben Wallace, of course, who was basically the perennial defensive player of the year at that stage. And Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton, who were all-star caliber players. And even Sheet, of course, made an all-star game uh, with the Pistons. Uh, I don't remember if he made any before that. I think he may have made, he may have appeared in an all-star game with uh with the Trailblazers. Man, if only there was a website I could check that on. In any case, I don't know too much about the Sheets' career with the Blazers, but um, right now I'm just remembering one completely random Sheets story after he left the Pistons. So Sheet is the all-time leader in, in NBA history in technicals in the single season with 41, which I believe is now impossible to actually match, to actually get to without being suspended a little bit too much. Though I might be wrong about those rules, whatever the case, it's just is not worth it for anybody to even remotely come close to approaching that number. It wasn't worth it for Sheet either, but it'd be a lot. It'd be a lot worse now. So this was in his final season after he'd retired and then come back and he was playing with the Knicks, and he fouled somebody. It was a shooting foul, and Sheed, as was typically the case, really didn't like the fact that he'd been called for a foul. So he complained and got a technical. So the the opponent took the first shot. And he missed, and Sheed, of course, as he was wont to do, yelled, ball, don't lie, and he got a second technical, and he got kicked out. So he got a, a double technical, or he got two technical fouls in zero seconds, but not for, you know, not in the same sequence. So good old Sheed. In any event, yeah, Tayshon would, I think, fit pretty much on any team in the NBA these days, prime, prime Tayshon, rather. A guy who is a rangy wing Long, athletic, strong on defense, shoots threes, can do a little bit of really rudimentary creation in the flow of an offense. Yeah, Tayshaun, I think, would be would be a solid guy in today's league, and I uh, absolutely would love to have to have prime Tayshaun Prince on this team. You know, maybe there's your your stretch for there. You know, your uh, your stretch for the future. And you know, goodness, but that obviously in the starting lineup would that be a, a pretty darn strong defensive starting lineup? At least three very plus defenders, I think. Duran, of course, uh, as I've said, I think will be a very plus defender. Asar, I think, being counted to be a very plus defender. And, and Prime, Prime Tayshawn, definitely a very plus defender as well. Just a bunch of switchable guys. And yeah, I think Kate is solid at Ivy, who's the real question mark in terms of his defense, which, uh, as I've mentioned, was very, very bad last year. But he was a rookie. I'm not feeling particularly concerned about it. Uh, 
not particularly concerned in the fact, you know, not in the context that I'm 100% positive he's going to become a good defender, just that it's, I think it's far too early to be getting concerned. Uh, he's certainly not lacking for work ethic too, which is, uh, which is nice. You can still fail, even as a hardworking defender, even as a hardworking athletic defender, but you've got a much higher chance of failing if you're a lazy defender. Excuse me, pardon the sniffles. Seems to be a, a consistent problem lately. So, yeah, easy answer there, Tayshawn. So, for the 2010s, we have Tobias Harris, who never made an All-Star game. He was really a fringe guy. One year in particular, that first year, that first full year, excuse me, this would have been 2018, 2019 with the Clippers. He was a fringe All-Star in, in a very, very deep Western Conference. But he didn't make it. So if that that if that is the criterion on which we are going, I would say, you know, sure that that era of uh, Tobias Harris, you know, who was there and you know in his last, especially like two thirds of the season with the Pistons, that was a young player who he did he was still prone to disappearance when he was kicked too far down the totem pole, but solid guy to to have on the team. I mean, a guy in his in his mid twenties who, uh, not on today's contract, obviously, but a, a strong scorer when utilized well by an able coach. And if we can't go with him, then the pool shrinks very significantly. And that would bring me to Reggie Bullock, who in his last one and a half seasons was really one of the strongest motion shooters in the NBA for the Pistons. Uh, He had his typical horribly, horribly, horribly slow starts. That was pretty much just the thing. He was going to come in and be awful for like the first couple of weeks. But aside from that, strong shooter, decent enough defender, hard worker. He'd be a solid bench player for the Pistons. So those would be my answers, and uh, thanks for submitting the question. I appreciate it. Next one, my most intriguing teams for 2023-2024. Okay, no particular order. Uh, one that I think you have to bring up just in general is the Thunder, who are just in a fantastic position with uh, one of the most elite scorers in the league and uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander and a bunch of promising young talents. You have uh, Davis Bertans. No, I'm just kidding. He's just on the team. I, I just said that to be funny. So obviously you have... Jalen Williams, who came in, was a real surprise last year, was, uh, if I remember correctly, the runner-up for Rookie of the Year. Strong role player. I don't think he's going to be the kind of guy who's necessarily going to continue improving all that much. He's a 2020, excuse me, 22-year-old player already who you know, has not the greatest athletic ceiling. That doesn't mean you're going to be a bad player, obviously, but it does. you got to be kind of special to transcend that past a point. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying. Oh, he's not athletic, so he's not going to be a good player. You know, he's, he's a decent athlete, I think. But I, I think he came in with a pretty high floor. He was a strong all-around player coming out of Santa Clara, and nobody expected him, I think, to be quite this strong. I think he'll be, he'll be a very solid starter going forward. Is what I'm saying. I just don't think he's gonna kind of take that. The, take his. He's, he was starting kind of at a higher point. I'll put it that way. He was less upside, more outside. But you have Shea. You have Jason Williams, who I think is going to be yeah a strong starter and potential trade bait. You haven't even seen anything out of Chet Holmgren, though I continue to believe that the guy absolutely just needs to put on a lot of weight and play at center in order to actually really capitalize on his potential in the NBA, and can he put on that weight? Who knows? Josh Giddy, who I think is going to be a capable point guard, still needs to improve as a shooter, but smart, good size. The entire lineup has good size, and you've just got so much draft stock there. You have a team that that already made the play-ins last season, even without Chet Holmgren, and I mean, Shea is just is a superstar. Shea is a superstar scorer, and there, you know there are no two ways about it at the age of 25. So even if you just see a decent amount of improvement from those guys, you know from uh, from the from the youth outside of Shea, who I, I mean, there's not. <laughs> I mean, if the guy improves more, I'll put it that way. I mean, good, watch out. He's already a 30 point per, per point per game scorer. Who, like the vast, 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 vast majority of his offense is unassisted. I mean, he's just very extremely difficult to stop. So the Thunder are definitely going to be a team to watch. And of course, they're always a threat to make 
a trade to improve the team, obviously, because they have an obscene amount of draft stock. So um, moving on the Pelicans, the Pelicans, I would say, are an interesting team because if Zion Williamson can just stay healthy, they are not far away from being a contender, if far at all, really. Zion is lampooned rightly for the fact that, well, where do I start with Zion? It's basically that he's a player with enormous scoring potential. I mean, the guy is literally about as unstoppable a player on the drive as the NBA has ever seen. It's his combination of touch, finesse, you know, touch and finesse, and, and just general skill with just a, a a frame that is tremendously strong, that is athletic, explosive, bouncy, agile. You put those two things together, he's just ex- he, he can't really shoot. Kind of guy who just doesn't really matter. You want to surround him with shooters, but you just give him the ball and to let him attack the rim. Chances are he's going to get there. And I mean, it's he's just he's really something to behold when he can actually stay on the floor. Unfortunately, he can't stay on the floor. It's that that incredible and ridiculous frame of his is one of the absolute key factors, obviously, to him being the player he is. And the qualities that make that you know that that make him what he is physically are also we're always inevitably going to make it very difficult for him to stay healthy in the NBA. And I think if he had done everything right, his body would still have begun to break down. You know, maybe as he got into his thirties, uh, some NBA players would just deliberately lose weight as they get in their thirties. Some guys who are who are kind of bulkier. Like LeBron and like Melo and Dwight Howard was kind of forced to do it because his back went out. But that that's what a lot of what it's about is is the back. But you know, your lower body also. And these guys play a lot of grueling minutes. Uh, there's only so much weight that Zion obviously can lose just by the nature of things. In, in the events, he definitely didn't come in and do everything right for his health. He did not maintain his weight. He needed to stay at the smallest weight he, he could possibly be at. Because again, I mean, you look at what his body can do and, and couple that with the size of it. You know, the density of it, it's just, it's extremely difficult on on the ankles, on the knees, on the feet, and eventually will be on the back, but not until he gets older. In the events, yeah, he, he definitely did himself no favors, and so his injuries have started earlier, but you take a healthy Zion, who is inherently a game changer on offense, because again, just good luck stopping the guy. You, you look at the one season in which he was reasonably healthy, because Zion has, uh, I believe, now missed the majority of his games in the NBA. Actually, I'm, I'm certain of that. It's not a probably. I mean, he's had four seasons. He's, he played 24 in his first. He played 29 in the most recent one. He missed his entire third season, and he played 61 games in his sophomore season. But in that season, he, as a player who was six foot six in shoes, so probably shy of six foot six, unless he's one of the odd guys who rounds down, but I'll put it this way, yeah, he's a six foot six player. He led the league in restricted area field goal attempts per game, and he made 70% of them, and I think a lot of those were unassisted. So he's just there's really been in terms of what he specifically brings to the table no player ever like him in the nba just in, in what he provides in terms of melding his skill with that frame of his so all of this is just to, to loop back to what i was saying at the beginning which is that if he is healthy the pelicans are in very good position because you've got a decent amount of talent on this team brandon ingram is a good player you know, another good young player in his mid in his mid twenties who can shoot, who can create. He's like one of the rare shot creators in the NBA. CJ McCollum is, you know, another decent creator, a decent guy in the ball. I mean, they could really use like an honest to goodness point guard, but which they don't have. But you take those three and you add Trey Murphy, who is going to miss some of the season, but has already drastically, you know, outstripped his his draft position. You know the guys. The guys looking real good as a strong defender and a guy who can do some creation. Is just a, a high efficiency scorer. And Herb Jones, who 
I think we'll get it together ultimately as a shooter and is just one of the league's strongest perimeter defenders. Larry Nance Jr. is a solid backup center. Jonas Valanciunas is, they, they got to replace him and I'm not sure how they're going to do it, but you could just put a traditional center there, you know, just a strong traditional center there and probably do fine even though Zion can't shoot. Uh, Dyson Daniels, who knows what's going to happen with him, another, you know, if he can learn to shoot guy, but they've just, they've got the high level talent there. Zion is every bit good enough to be the, the number one guy in a championship team. So it's really all about him, but talented though he is, the ne- most necessary first ability, the ability you have to have to do anything in any field is availability. You've got to be able to report to work and do your job. And thus far, he hasn't been able to. Now, with his health having gone haywire very, very early, can he get it back on track? Or is he just going to be one of the NBA's big what ifs? I, I think it's going to be the latter, unfortunately, but I hope it's the former. I hope he's able to get it together because, I mean, beyond the fact that you never, obviously you always want, you know, want these guys to be healthy, even if they're not in your team. It's just a, it's a big loss to the NBA. You have a player like that, just not, you know, to, to all of us as fans to not have a player like that be able to play. So that's another one, the Pelicans. Uh, the Nuggets, this is almost just kind of like, how do they adjust to getting a little bit worse? They ran afoul of the CBA, particularly in the case of Bruce Brown, who <clears throat> wasn't like an absolutely key player, but that is a significant loss in turn, you know, for a team that didn't really have a ton in the way of depth. He was an important role player for them. Uh, he signed a one and one and at the end of the season, I mean, they had nothing, they had no way, not even remotely any way of, of matching what Indiana would through at the guy. And, and the most that they could offer him was the mid-level exception. Uh, I believe they're a tax team too. So they could only offer him the, uh, the taxpayer mid-level exception. So you also, I mean, Reggie Jackson, no disrespect to the guy, but he's extremely washed up. You know, he's basically, I mean, Christian Brown actually did pretty well. I think it's Brown rather than Brown actually did pretty well last season. And, you know, they've got some some young guys on the team and really just got to hope for development there. Um, losing Jeff Green, I guess, and Jeff Green's not irreplaceable, but I think they downgraded for him, you know, on him even there. You got to hope that Zeke Nagy is, is pretty good. So it's a team that really lacks depth now. And you're still really strong in terms of creation. Obviously, you've got, I mean, Jokic speaks for himself. Jamal Murray is a very strong creator. Michael Porter Jr., they could really use a leap from him because right now he's just like an elite three-pointer, elite, very difficult to block, three, a three-point shooter who is pretty poor on defense and makes all sorts of horrible decisions on offense if you actually let him handle the ball. So I'm just looking to see what happens there. I think, though, that the Nuggets got very, very fortunate in the teams that they faced in the offseason. And, <clears throat> yeah, I just think they got very, very fortunate. They, <clears throat> in the first round, were facing a team that had no hope of measuring up to them. And the Timberwolves in the second rounds, Chris Paul goes out. Monty Williams does a pretty bad job. And they're just playing against a team that has no penetration. In the conference finals, I mean, LeBron is the only guy. You got to attack Jokic on defense. LeBron's really the only guy in that team who did that. Anthony Davis had a bad series. And and then in the finals, I mean, the Heat got there. Jimmy Butler was was really torn up already. And, and the Heat had, had really no business, in my opinion. I mean, it was really kind of like a Cinderella run of the finals. That team really didn't have a ton of talent. It was really held together by fantastic coaching and Jimmy Butler being an, an absolute supernova postseason player. I mean, he was amazing, but he had nothing left by that point. He was he was injured also by the time they got into the finals. Uh, not to take away from what they did, I just think that their their route there was was fairly easy, and they're going to be going in uh, assuming they don't get good production from uh, you know from young players. They're going to be going in a significantly a pretty shallow team next season, and you know we'll see how it goes. 
uh, the Cavaliers, uh, if Evan Mobley, like they are still fairly weak at small forward. Like if, you know, this is in no particular order. Obviously the most important thing there is that Evan Mobley uh, becomes a shooter. And if Evan Mobley becomes a shooter, I mean, you've got a contender there. They they ran into some issues in the postseason because uh, having the whole Twin Towers can't shoot model, even if you have like two elite creators at, at, at guard, which they do, that's kind of an issue, especially in the postseason. And yeah, but if Mobley can, can learn to shoot, you've got a very complete roster, even without really a, a strong small forward. If Isaac Okoro could just get it together for them, that would be absolutely huge. If he just becomes a good three-point shooter on decent volume, that would be absolutely huge for them. But just even if Mobley gets to get, gets it together, I mean, they too are going to have some issues with depth, but that's just such a potent starting lineup, and you can rotate Mitchell and Garland in so that you you know have a strong creator on the floor basically at all times, you know, assuming good health. Max Struess, I think, was a little bit of a weird pickup for them. He was kind of the kind of guy, like, don't trust heat role players. He is a, a strong shooter, not the greatest defender. And you just you take him away from Miami, where Spolster is just so expert at using guys like that. I think he's going to drop in terms of effectiveness. I think that money could have been better spent. Does Karis LeVert come off the bench now? Who knows? Maybe I'm saying something stupid there. But, yeah, in terms of depth, they're not great. I don't think they're necessarily a championship contender. But if Mobley can get it together, I think that's going to be a very interesting team to watch and a team that can make it to the conference finals. And then finally, obviously, the team we're most interested in is the Pistons. If you look at the Rockets or the Spurs, uh, the Rockets I'm not feeling too hot on next year. They are, are going to obviously be trying to win, but man, that's a team with some issues and a team that is still a bit of a mess, and I'm not sure if they're going to find it within themselves to get it together in this, in, just in this upcoming season. If, if Amen Thompson, I mean, basically, it just a single win condition for them is just if if Amen Thompson can just get it together as a shooter by like year two or three, and you have him next to Jalen Green. I mean, that's in my opinion, a ch- you know championship caliber back backcourt right there in the first place. Shangun, I have his question. I have questions about his ability to play defense in the postseason because you know he's best off at center, <clears throat> and he's just going to get. They're just going to switch onto him constantly. He's, he's going to have to. They're going to make him defend in space, and they're going to make him just defend on switches against fast players. And I'm not sure he's necessarily going to be able to do that. And if he can't do that, you're going to limit your team inherently in the postseason. I mean, if you're like an absolute offensive titan, like all you know, like like Nikola Jokic, then you can give up some stuff on defense, and you're still providing an incredible amount of value to your team. But you have Jokic, and then you have guys like Sabonis, and like you know maybe Shangun. And if he becomes a Sabonis, I mean that's a major win. But you still get to play him at center in the postseason, and he's no Jokic. So uh, Cam Whitmore is obviously a wild card. It's just like I don't feel great about how the, how that team comes together, and I I don't feel great about them getting it together this year. And the Spurs, of course, are the Spurs, and they are where they are. Wembanyama is going to be fun to watch. My main hope for him is that he stays healthy and that he does not start accruing injuries in the first year of his NBA career. That would be awful. So those are the teams I'm going to be watching next season. Uh, Moving forward, would I take the going to work title or not having to deal with 15 years of irrelevancy, which is which has been it for the Pistons? Um, you know, I, I think this is uh, this uh, was submitted by Price. I'm sure many of you remember from uh, the draft preview series. So, as I understand it, would I trade the going to work title, and you know, assuming we have no championships in this in this situation? for 15 years in which the Pistons weren't quite as bad? Uh, I'd say no. I mean, obviously, it's just, it's so hard to give up a championship, to say, you know, we would give up on the Pistons reaching the top of the mountain, which is just such a sublime moment for any sports fan, in my, in my opinion. Well, I'm just one sports fan. 
But I, I think a lot of us have that in common, that it's just such a big deal to watch your team win a championship. You know, if if it's like, okay, we know this is going to cost, you know, a few years down the line, the Pistons are going to fall into 15 years as just a, a team that's constantly struggling. Yeah, it would hurt to know that, but uh, I would never, even though I wasn't nearly as into the Pistons now as I, uh, back then, excuse me, as I am now, still, that was just, uh, that was such a fun team. And it was just so cool, especially as, as just the, the, embodiment of the underdog to see them win that championship so no i wouldn't give that up and the thing is the pistons didn't have to be this bad the last 15 years they've had to do a lot of things wrong though of course the last three years have been being bad for a reason which is very very different from what the pistons did for the first 12 years from really from the chauncey trade onward which was for the most part trying to be good in a really really stupid way and being good enough that you are never picking you're never one of the one of the teams that has the highest lottery odds but not you're not managing well enough or coaching well enough, but mostly you just don't have the talent to, to be a team that's going to be able to do anything significant. And also for most of that time, you also suck at drafting. But yeah, in a second, I'd take the title in the last 15 years versus no title and 15 years in which the Pistons, you know, might've been better, but, you know, still we're not going to, we're not going to come closer or not, not going to win that title. Uh, so moving on the FIBA squad, which ended up in fourth, which in the uh, in, in the FIBA World Cup, which was of course kind of a disappointment for a country that still has, you know, the greatest preponderance of of NBA talent. Here's the thing, and this ties into another question I got, which is, you know, can you talk about how you know things have changed from the dream team onward in terms of how the United States competes at the international level? And that would be kind of like more of a that would be more of a, a protracted analysis, but the meat of it is basically that when the when the um, when NBA players first became eligible to go to the Olympics, I mean, it was a big deal to go there and represent your country. And they got the best of the best. And back then, international basketball talent was nowhere near what it is today, like nowhere even close. So the dream team, which was composed of many of the best players in NBA history, came in and obliterated everybody. They just annihilated everyone. It was it was no contest. Uh, over time, playing in the Olympics became less of a novelty. Players cared about it less. Uh, less good players went. And then, you know, and then at the same time, the quantity of international basketball talent steadily grew to where we see it today, where some of the, a lot of the top talent in the NBA is made up of foreign born players. Like for example, this season, the top three guys in MVP odds were, it was, this was uh, Embiid, Jokic and, and Giannis are, are all foreign born players. You have Luca as a foreign born player. I mean, you've got, you've got a, a ton more talent at every level, you know, from, from superstar all the way down just a role, just standard role player than you, than you have ever had before. And I kind of feel like you also have these rosters from the United States where, well, number one, especially in the World Cup, here's the thing about the World Cup, like the NBA season is very long. And a lot of these guys just want their offseason to relax and to heal. So the World Cup is never going to be a big attraction. And that's not to say the United States didn't send a team that, that I think by right should have won because they had a very good team. But um, they weren't the best the United States had to offer. And I kind of feel like you have other teams that come out there with less talent that still have enough talent to do something. Like Canada, of course, uh, you know, could they, they fielded a, a pretty good, well, a decent starting lineup. Uh, Germany had nowhere near the amount of actual basketball talent the NBA did. But you have these guys who come in who are not really just treating this as something we can do during the summer when I come out and play, you know, play some ball and win a, champ, win a tournament that you know, really isn't like the most important thing in the world, of course, but you know, we go out, we kind of want to win. Whereas these guys from other countries were coming out and just playing their hearts out. 
maybe playing as more of a team, but just playing kind of higher effort basketball, which generally doesn't trump talents. But when you're just kind of putting together a bunch of, uh, you're just kind of mashing together NBA talent, maybe with, with guys who haven't played together as much. I don't know. The, M- the, the United States should have won this tournament. I mean, they just, they had drastically more talent than, than everybody else. Only Canada even came close and they came close on the basis of just having Shea Gilgis Alexander. Vudor does not a, you know, is that they were a relatively weak offensive team when you're starting uh, Lou Dort, who is just not a good scorer. He's a low efficiency guy. You have RJ Barrett, who has consistently struggled at the NBA level as a scorer. You have Dylan Brooks, who sucks as a scorer at the NBA level, though he certainly did well in, in the, uh, in the third place game. And then you have a bench, which is basically just kind of Kelly Olenek, like Zach Eady. Well, he's not really playing many minutes, but you just, you don't have a good bench. The, the United States had by far the most talent in this tournament, but they were just not, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win if you're not playing as a team and you're not playing the right way. Uh, do I personally particularly care? I mean, no, like the World Cup, it's just like it is in hockey, though hockey, of course, has, has talent much more evenly, dis- you know, even more evenly, dis- well, considerably more evenly distributed. When you look at all the teams in hockey, of course, uh, Canada is still the team with with the plurality of NBA, NHL, excuse me, NHL talent. The United States is number two, but you've got top end talent from a from a bunch of countries, from Sweden, from Finland, from Russia, from Slovakia, from the Czech Republic. It's not nearly that even in the NBA, but it's kind of well. Also in the NHL, I mean, the guys who go to the World Cup are the guys who miss the playoffs or got knocked out of the playoffs early enough to play. But it's just kind of a, a thing that guys go and do. It's not like it was in the Olympics in the old days. I'm not trying to sound like a uh, like oh you know back in the day these guys cared about you know playing for their country. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that it's less of a thing now. These guys go out there and it's you know they're not playing as far as in the same way as, as things are at stake at the NBA level. It also didn't help that the three best players were all guards between Halliburton, Edwards, and Brunson. Uh, the team wasn't. But again, they they just they had enough talent to win elsewhere. It would have really helped to have somebody you know somebody who was better at center. Jaron Jackson Jr. was not great, and the United States had issues with rebounding at times. And I'm kind of reaching the point at which it's like I didn't watch enough of this to like give really in depth analysis. But it's funny you look at, at how Cade and and Durham are in there. Just you know, if you play Durham at center, things may have improved for you quite a bit versus playing Walker Kessler at center, who has his limitations in, in a way that, that Durant doesn't necessarily, you know, strong drop defender, but it doesn't really provide more just kind of the all-around, um, how do I put this? I think Durant is just more versatile for the game, for the role that he was I would have been asked to be played. So ironically, you put him out there, maybe things are a little bit better for you. Well, certainly in, uh, in the third place game. No, Jaron Jackson Jr. just in, in general had a rotten tournament. And he was absolutely terrible on the boards. Again, have a Duran out there, maybe that's not as much of an issue. He's not as good of a, as a, of a defender as Jaron Jackson Jr., but you at least have him on the roster. Who knows? Who knows where Cabe would have really found his, uh, his, his spot on the roster, just, uh, again, given that the three, the three best players in that roster were all guards. He was, probably wasn't going to spend a ton of time on the ball. I'm sorry, because I know this was an incredibly meandering answer. And I hope it was at least somewhat entertaining to listen to. But it's just basically, it's the world championship. It's not really that the, the USA isn't sending its best players there because those players don't necessarily want to play. Like you look back, even to the Olympics, you look back to the Redeem team, which was basically like, you know, we've got the most basketball talent in the world. Let's get together the best team we possibly can and go out there and win this thing. And they can, and they could still do it today. They could do it in the World Cup as well. But the players aren't, the best players are not coming to the table which is what it is. Again, I think you can understand it, especially in 
for a competition that's held in the off season, which again is a very long off season, a very long season. And these guys want this time to, to rest and recoup and, you know, rest their bodies and, you know, have a period in their lives that isn't that completely dominated by, by the job like it is during the season. But I think that if, if the USA ever fields a team that has the best of its talent, I don't think it's realistically beatable. The in-season tournament. All right. So, uh, yeah, the in-season tournament is new this year. Uh, I'd go, uh, d- go check it out. If you want to, if you want to know about it, I can probably, there's, there's some material from the NBA that can, that can explain it better just from, from reading it than I can. But basically it, the games in the in-season tournament, aside from the championship are, are counted against, counted toward your record. Teams are split into six divisions. Each of them will play six divisions of five teams. Each team will play four games, of course, against the other four teams. And then the top six are the, the leaders of every division. And then the two teams that play second but uh, had the best records, which probably involve point differential or whatever tie-breaking means they're using, which I, I think is most likely probably the same as they use in the NBA for playoffs, uh, playoffs purposes. We'll move on to the second round, which is single elimination, and so on and so forth. So the Pistons got drawn into a group with the 76ers, who I think, even if Harden is holding out, will still be a pretty decent team next season, but probably more beatable. The Cavaliers, who I think should be strong and probably win that group. The Hawks, who are who are a fringe team. The Pacers, whom the Pistons could well be better than next season. Um, so basically, the Pistons are going to... It's kind of a tall order for them to win the conference. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, there are enough variables in that group that maybe they can play second. So, yeah, I don't think it's a bad group for the Pistons. You don't necessarily have, like, a clear Titan there. Though, I think the Cavs are likely to be the best. And who knows? Maybe Maxi goes nuclear for the for the the Sixers next season. So I'd, I'd say the Pistons are like the three and a half best team in the group because I don't think the Hawks are really all that great of a team and things could really come together for the Pistons next season. But I think their route out of the group is a little difficult. Again, though, this is one game against each team. You never know what's going to happen. As far as how I feel about the tournament itself, uh, there are plenty of teams that have absolutely no hope of winning it. But for those teams, it's just these are just games as usual. So my guess it's like an additional gimmick in the middle of the season, I like that they just made it regular games, you know, and instead of making it into like an actual tournament, which I guess would not realistically have worked out within the context of the standings, because you would have been just asking teams to play a bunch of teams to play, I guess, some more games than the others. It just would have been kind of a distraction from the season. And who knows, maybe it'll add kind of, uh, it will add more meaning to a certain number of games in November. And finally, how can I stay sane until the season starts? Uh, you don't have long to go, my friend. And until then, uh, you know, there are plenty of good computer games if you're a gamer that have come out. Uh, Baldur's Gate 3 has been pretty good. I know Starfield just came out. It's going to be completely ludicrous, like like any Bethesda game upon release. We've already seen that it's got a certain, you know, d- d- decent ways to go, but these Bethesda games almost always get there, and the modders help them get there. So worth checking out. If you're a football fan, you can watch that. Personally, I don't. Uh, for me, any sport that's not basketball or hockey just kind of feels a little bit too slow to me. Um is not me saying anything just beyond that like when when i really got back into sports in the mid-2000s it was hockey hockey is of course a super fast sport and then i I transitioned from there to basketball and yeah also football i'm not saying that anybody should uh you know should feel bad about watching it but man is it a barbaric sport these guys get messed up it's very very difficult to escape the nfl without some form of brain damage and that makes it a little harder for me to watch, just knowing the the price that these guys pay. They pay it willingly, even though I think it's, I don't think anybody's really capable of saying, um, 
you know, of comprehending what it's like to live with brain damage. And, and of course the NFL, even, uh, you know, even leaving aside some share of understanding that the league is there to, to protect the teams is, is just shameful the degree to which they are completely unwilling to, to accept. Uh, and I know it's legal liability, but it's completely that uh, just the owners are, are completely and thus the league front office are completely unwilling to step up to the plate in terms of anything they can do. I mean, there is no way to keep CTE out of football. It is just a fact of life, and these guys go in and knowing the risks. But in terms of mitigating them however possible and acting to, to take care of these guys after they leave the league, it's like, my goodness, it's just so ugly that you know that these guys are going to get so messed up. I mean, football is an intensely physical sport, and these guys get constantly jostled, and your brain gets bounced around in its pan. And it's generally, it, it's, it's much more often a series of micro-concussions that basically overwhelm the brain's ability to heal than it is a, a series of major concussions, that when you get major concussions, each one makes it easier for the next concussion to be very bad. <clears throat> you just become more and more prone for the, you know, for the next concussion is going to be a lot worse than the one before it. Um, but if you're a big football fan, you can watch that. Getting, I believe, into getting closer to the end of the, the Major League Baseball season. Uh, I don't know. A lot of good books out there. Uh, happy to give you some recommendations, particularly if you like uh, history, science fiction, or fantasy. And uh, fortunately, we don't have long to go, and it's not going to be long before we've, you know, we've got, uh, you know, plenty of, of at least news and some content to, you know, feast upon. And we are, a, you know, less than a month, just just about exactly four weeks until the beginning of preseason. So for me, this off season feels like it's gone a little bit shorter than the ones before. Though two years ago, the off season was literally shorter by a month, and of course, the year before that, it lasted for eight months. But like I said, I'm you know really confident that soon enough we're going to see the Pistons have shorter off seasons. So I hope you folks enjoyed this episode. I know there was a lot of meandering here, and and of course there's a certain amount of difficulty, you know, keeping up with relevant news because there's so little at this point after the the draft is over and summer league is over, and we've you know we've talked about every player on the roster, and uh, there's plenty still to preview. You know, and then and there will be those episodes, you know, probably do two or three of those that might actually account for the remainder of the episodes, of, you know, prior to preseason. Uh, but just in general, uh, we're getting close and I'm feeling real excited about this season. I think we've got a lot to be excited for. So uh, that'll be it for this episode, folks. As always, I want to thank you all so much for listening. Catch you in next week's episode.